Okay, you ready? Yep. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living social history book about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. Oh, there we have it. You developed your character in Africa. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I had a street performer dilemma. I was in a duo show, and when that went, he was up. I decided I wasn't going to reinvent myself very successfully, surrounded by my peers. So I just tried to find a place as far away from them as I could. <laughs> Cape Town, South Africa, baby. Was that <laughs> a one-way ticket? One-way ticket. <laughs> <laughs> You're ballsy. I mean, I give you that. You're ballsy. <laughs> I think I made it harder for myself than I had to. I first met Lee Nelson back when he was performing in the Daisy and Derek show, then bumped into him again a couple of years ago at the Dundas Buskers Festival. But I had no clue about his backstory until co-producer Lindsay Lindbergh handed me a couple of recordings she made that blew my mind. Ballsy is how Lindsay describes Lee, and I couldn't agree more, though I'd add to this description an insatiable desire to grow, learn, and push his own capabilities to the limit. I also have a theory that the environment you develop your work in shapes what that work becomes, because as performers we gravitate towards the things that induce laughter and approval from our audiences. Certainly this had an effect on Lee whenever he bought a one-way ticket to a different destination and developed new work. The destinations, to a degree, informed his artistic choices and his growth as an artist, a journey full of so many stories from the pitch. Here's Lee and Lindsay. Long time no see. It's fun hanging out with you in Singapore. I know, that was it was a really good time. It was fun to just get to know you pretty well. It's good to finish that job and come back to the real world, man. <laughs> How was the rest of your trip? Uh, China was a awesome, awesome experience. Yeah, you had friends out there, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, thank God, because um, English gets you nowhere in that place. <laughs> what a big change from being in Singapore and feeling like somehow that was normal to get to speak English everywhere you went. Yeah, 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 Singapore's a freaky place like that, eh? Yeah, but it was a lot of fun. It's hard to do that downgrade. You feel like you're shifting into low gear. Totally. What do I do now? 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 Right. There's that slight panic feeling where you're like, huh, my hands aren't busy. What? <laughs> What's wrong? So you jump in and you go right back to the circus school and stuff. You're teaching as soon as you go home. Yeah, I've been doing ages. My company's work is also just going into its slow period now. It just like last weekend was our last big weekend. Mm-hmm. Now that the jobs get a bit few and far between up until Christmas. And then after Christmas, we pick up and it just get busier and busier and busier until next October. So you really only got a couple months off. What do you do when you have time off? What do you do to chill out? I used to get drunk with my friends. <laughs> but now I hang out with my daughter. That's probably much more healthy that way. Well, the really cool thing is she loves to do uh, acrobalance with me. She likes the feet-to-hand stuff. Mm-hmm. She like so comes over and gets me and makes me lie down and then stands in my hands and <laughs> I, I push her up and then she can stand in my hands. She can turn around to sitting on my feet and then she can twist back up to standing again. It's, it's retarded how good she is. At two? That's amazing. She's not even two, mate. She's uh, 20 months. Oh, my God. But my plan is I would like very, very, very much to be able to do a show with her while she's young. You know, uh-huh. just, just something that we can always share and have for ourselves, you know. That would be really cool. It sounds like you've got a good little monkey on your hands for sure. Indeed, I do. <laughs> well, so where did you learn to do all this stuff? I learned to do acrobatics, God, just by asking questions. 
Yeah, I just every time I saw people doing anything, I would go and ask, and just learn little bits and little bits, and it all eventually it all added up, and then I went to a circus school. So, how old were you when you got into it, and what had you been doing before that? Circus or street performing? I don't know which came first for you. I street performed before I did circus. Okay. Yeah, I saw. Uh, I was more into that. I was into jug- juggling came first. Juggling was the first thing. I learned to juggle, and I street performed like almost instantly. I, I-, I started street performing like just two or three days after I learned how to juggle. <laughs> you jumped right in, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I learned how to juggle in in Europe when I was a backpacker. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, then I saw street performers, and I saw them solving what was my biggest eighteen-year-old problem. And the street performers seemed like they could just go anywhere they want and make money and travel. Mm-hmm. I thought, ah, oh, fuck it, man, I can juggle. <laughs> Not well, <laughs> but I can do what they do. And that's how it started. I had three clubs and I had three balls. And I was in Granada, I think, in, in Spain. Mm-hmm. I put three balls on the ground and I juggled my three clubs. And when I dropped a club, I would pick up a ball seamlessly like no one would notice. <laughs> And I'd start to juggle two clubs and a ball until I dropped something else. And I'd pick something else really quickly. So I was juggling like odd objects. But I figured that was more interesting to watch. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I just sat there and practiced basically with a hat in front of me uh, for about a week in Granada. And every single day I made I made enough money, man, for my bed and my food and my bar. And I just knew I was onto something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I met some more people and I learned a few more things and... And that's when I first met some acrobats. I I did my first too high and things like that. Yeah. So who were the people that you were watching when you first dove in? I have absolutely no idea. That was Spanish. And I couldn't speak any Spanish. But, you know, we're a community at the end of the day. And uh, juggling is a language all by itself. It doesn't need English or or French or Spanish. I mean, the language of juggling is instantly recognizable to all jugglers. So you can communicate at a level, you know. Well, cool. So where did you go from there? Oh, I, I traveled a bit more in Europe, and then my visa ran out. My citizenship's Australian, so I had my, my two-year working visa to Europe ran out, and I went home to Australia, went home to Perth, and I, I went to a, enrolled myself into a clown course taught by Spanner the Clown. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've met him, Leroy. Yeah, yeah, I have met him. And there I met these guys called Jackie Elgie and Conrad, mm-hmm. and they're still performing around the traps. This was 15 years ago. But Jackie's now Miss Australia. She toured Canada this year. And Conrad plays Brucey. He does a Steve Irwin impersonation. Yes, I've seen him and I love him. And I've heard so many good things about Jackie. Yeah, they're both wonderful humans. And I talked both of those two guys into quitting their jobs. (laughs) And chucking like a couple of thousand bucks in each to buy a van and stuff. And I organised some jobs up in the uh, way, up in the mining camps, up in the Pilbara, Western Australia. And um, yeah, we all just piled into this van, which we painted in six different colours, <laughs> and just drove it north without really much skill between us, to be quietly honest. <laughs> and um, we lived and died in a, in a couple of really rough towns. In one town, I distinctly remember the police coming up to us and recommending that we should leave. <laughs> After a show, <laughs> yeah, but you know, though we still got our money, you know, and we, it was enough to keep going. And uh, yeah, three months into that trip, we're in this place called Broome, 
And that was a, like a little oasis of culture in the sea of rednecks, really, in terms of Western Australia. Uh-huh. And they had a market there. Me and Conrad did street shows together. We call ourselves the professional idiots. Mm-hmm. And kind of learned a little bit about doing street shows. And I was doing table magic. I was table hopping for money as well. We stayed there for about three months and we kind of worked it out a little bit. And then we kept driving and went to Darwin up the top end of Australia. And that's when I saw my first really good street performer. I saw Mr. Spin mm-hmm. and uh, a guy called Barney B. And I watched people working in the crowd. I watched, I, I saw, I saw crowd mechanics right. and a formulaic show and, and character or, or audience participation and all the things. And uh, that was educational. And they were both, particularly Nigel and Mr. Spin, a very, very helpful human being. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and in Darwin, we cracked it. We worked out the shop. And we also did some other things. We did uh, synchronized swimming in a fountain. <laughs> There's this fountain in the mall in Darwin that shot water up from the ground. Like, you've probably seen them. They're around the place. They just, like, spurt water up randomly. Mm-hmm. And Jackie just went, oh, it would be good to do synchronized swimming in there. And within a week, we were costumed up and we were... Gaza, Shazza, and Dazza. And we were representing Australia and we were going for gold. And <laughs> that was really, really, really much fun. That was uh, not a traditional street performing show at all, but it was still street performing. We held our hats out. And we got lots of we got gigs out of that. That's cool. Still working on the street. It was nice to learn the street from both sides, like to do a show that everyone loved, but no one paid us for. Mm hmm. And then also to be working in the night markets, doing this generic style show and working out how to get paid. Yeah, to see the two different sides. It's interesting, too, that you did table magic as well. Sounds like you really did dabble in quite a bit. I missed that on my story. That was actually the very first thing I did when I was 18 years of age. I met a magician in Perth called Matt Penny, and he charged me a ridiculously little amount of money. It was uh, $5 a night to come and learn magic off him for six weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only catch was at the end of the six weeks, I had to come out and show the tricks I'd learned. So I was quite diligent. I learned my tricks and then uh, went out on the first Friday night and he was going to stay with me. That was his plan. So I walked into this restaurant with him where he'd been performing and, and busking for tips with his magic. We walked up to a table together. A bit, I remember it so much. This great big long table and, uh, he doesn't say anything to me. He, he goes to all these people, Hi, I'm Magic Matt. This is my apprentice Lee. <laughs> He'll be entertaining you tonight. <laughs> and walk away. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I actually shat my pants. And <laughs> I, I, I started the first trick, and I swear to God, my hands were shaking like leaps. I was so nervous. I performed before, really, really. And hands were shaking like leaves. And, and But then... The, and you know, when you, if you've ever done a magic trick, every magic trick has got a little thing, a little part that you have to hide, and that's where the magic is, you know? Mm-hmm. And my hands are shaking, and I was doing the little hidey, the thing I meant to hide, and I'm sure everyone could see it, but then, lo and behold, it was magic. <laughs> everyone clapped, and went, wow. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> that was the real magic, that you pulled it off. If it was that, if it was that bad and it worked... And, yeah, and then my confidence just grew. So I was, yeah, I was. I did that table magic for almost a year. Like when I came back from Europe, that's what I was doing. I was doing table magic mm-hmm. and uh, going to this clown course and, and going to juggling clubs and, and just learning things. 
And I was there for about a year, and then we went traveling. And we did that traveling thing for about three years, was pretty much all around Australia, until uh, it was ironic, because we had this show that was so Olympic-themed, and it was right up until in 2000 when Sydney had the Olympics, and we had the company we'd made, had, we got this really big contract to work this show in, in Sydney. And um, I just left. I decided I wanted to go to circus school and, and get better. And, uh, yeah, I flew over to New Zealand and had a look at the place. And, and then, uh, yeah, I told the guys that you know, they have to replace me for the, the Sydney contract. I was, um, I was moving on. And that was that, yeah. And then I was uh, in circus school for a couple of years there, and I was just working down at the local pitch, supporting myself. And I hooked up with a girl in circus school called Anita, and uh, she was the other person that had, like, a, an acrobalance thing that she really wanted to do. So we got thrown together, and we became partners, and we made a cool show called Daisy and Derek, and we toured that around uh, New Zealand for a couple of years, and then we sent up. It was funny, hey? We went to Europe and Canada with it for about three years in a row. And it was back in the old days before the internet. And you had to get videos made, change them to NTSC, change the formats and mm-hmm. send loads of videos to the other side of the world and wait for letters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a different world it is now. Exactly. Very, very different world, hey? Compared to, like, the work I do nowadays when I want to book a tour, it's, it's, yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> We did that until, I think we finished doing Daisy and Derek in 2004, and Anita was like my partner as well as my partner, like most duos, we hooked up. Mm -hmm. So when that broke up, we had a long, awkward time because we were quite popular, so we had a lot of contracts. So we had to finish out our contracts at the same time as we were barely being able to talk, you know. And when all that was done, I realized I was unemployed and out of love and luck. I couldn't face going back to Australia and New Zealand and learning to do a new show and sucking. I couldn't face sucking, basically, mm-hmm. in front of my peers. So, um, yeah, I bought a one-way ticket to South Africa. Okay. And I learned how to do the Wally show in Cape Town. And uh, that's why it's so rough, man. My Wally show is a very rough show because I made it in a place that's by far the most unpolitically correct place in the world. Well, the rougher you were and the more rude you were, the, the more you made. What was that like? Doing a rough, rude show or being in South Africa? Well, yeah, and starting from scratch. I mean, you're, uh, people are people, so you're still learning in front of a crowd, but starting from scratch in a place that's so raw, is that? You're not really starting from scratch when you already understand how to make a show. Well, yeah, right. So you're not really, really starting from scratch. And I'd also done a fair few solo shows before. Mm-hmm. I was doing a new finale, and I was just started to do my rebalancing ladder finale, and I was falling off a lot. I was the only white street performer there. And, I was, yeah, I was falling off a lot. I was falling off and not getting a hat, basically. I was never getting my hat. I was getting my audience, and I was building everything up, and I was fucking up my finale. But then I started to get my finale. I started to nail it, and... And once I started to nail it, my confidence went up and I stepped away from the subsistence living. I started to earn more money than I could spend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and life just got easier. Tell me about the audiences there in South Africa. What were some distinct characteristics that were so different than where you had worked before? 
the incredible range of how wealthy and unwealthy people are. Mm. That would be by far the biggest thing, you know. There's just some people in the audience are well off and they've got nothing to worry about in life. And then there's people that you know are living on the street just around the corner. It's almost 50-50. But that's South Africa. That's just what South Africa is. Yeah, that was that was weird. And they love to laugh very, very, very much. They really like to laugh. And when you make them laugh, their laugh is so much bass in it that you, you tell a good joke or you do something funny or you do, yeah. And when the laugh is spontaneous, like it comes out of everyone at the same time, you feel it come through your body, like in the same way you'd feel it if you're at a concert and you're sitting in front of the speaker. Mm-hmm. You can feel the bass through you. That's uh, a feeling that I'll never, ever forget. I, I love it. And you, you get that when you work in Canada, of course, just through the sheer size of the audience. Mm-hmm. But you can get that in South Africa on a small audience just because of the, the way an African's anatomy is, I suppose. They, they have a deeper voice, in my opinion, and they laugh louder. <laughs> what kind of humor do they go for? They really like to laugh at other people and laugh at themselves. It's just a rough place. They love it when you pick on somebody in the audience. You, if, you, if you shame somebody out, Everybody's in on it. They're like, shame. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's really, really, really good fun. Okay. The hardest thing was taking that show. Like, it was a really, really strong show in South Africa and then taking it to places that are incredibly politically correct, like Canada. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Like, when I did my first Canadian tour with Wally after being in South Africa, I was like, oh, my God, I'm filthy. I'm filthy and I'm rude. And, and, and oh, really, really, it was awful. It was awful. <laughs> And I come to grips with it all. And you know, after a little while, I realized that people still liked it. Mm-hmm. And people weren't walking away, like some people were. But really, the vast majority of people were staying and watching. And people are people. They liked it too. So I got over myself and embraced it. That's what it is. I'm going to be true to myself. So I became the dirty clown. So I think that's really interesting, the whole being the dirty clown and being really unapologetic about it and then bringing it to, like you said, an audience that has a lot more, uh, at least outside decorum, you know, that, oh, you can't do this. But what do you find when you perform for audiences like that? You know, like you're allowing them to enjoy that in public. How is that for you as the person who's leading the group? Yeah, like I said, at first it was a little bit awkward, but once I embraced it, then it was fine. What happened was I, I came to grips with that by realizing that the kind of humor I was doing was the same humor they'd probably throw around the barbecue and everyone would laugh at. But they'd feel very comfortable laughing at it because they were amongst friends. Understand? Mm-hmm. So I realized that what I was doing was funny. The problem really wasn't with me. The problem was with the audience thinking it wasn't okay to laugh about these things in public. Right. That's fascinating. And I found that what I actually did was I amped up the very start of my show. It was just unapologetic. The first word out of my mouth, I would set the tone. This is the way it's going to be. Check one, two, testing one, two, check testies one, two. Mm-hmm. I figured if people would laugh at that, then I'd just keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> they purchased the ticket. <laughs> They're in the game. <laughs> keep on just, you know, making more and more and more and more and more and more, right up to my big anal sex finale. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. 
<laughs> well, that's what it is, man. Come on. <laughs> but, uh, but I never say that. You know, I just allude to it a lot. But you have to be very blind to not see the parallels. They are deliberate. Mm-hmm. You really do play the coy, but then you give the wink, wink, like you, you know. If you spelled it out, if you spelled it out, like you actually acknowledged it, it wouldn't work. You yeah. could just constantly, relentlessly allude to it, and that's how it works to get people on your side. You know, they, just, they know it's coming, and so it's not shocking. Like you can watch like a squeaky clean act; they can't pull out a single dirty joke. You can have an act that's squeaky clean for forty-five minutes, and then they make one ever, ever so mildly off-colour joke. And they'll get 50 complaints, mm-hmm. even though they've been squeaky clean for 40 minutes. And then like one tiny little nothing gag, and all hell breaks loose. But right next to them, you could have a performer like me just throwing out, you know, really off-color stuff for 45 minutes and not getting a single complaint. It's all in the way it's, you have to set it up. You know, let people know what to expect, basically, and... And give them plenty of chance to walk away early. So do you warn people when they hire you for things if you've not, you know, worked with them before? Or do you just... <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Because at the end of the day, I'm a good entertainer. Yeah. And, and I don't get complaints. I'm, I'm a firm believer. It's, it's like, you know, when you, you go to a new town you've never been to before and you see a pitch... You don't move hell or high water going to try and find the person to give you permission to work on that spot because chances are the person you eventually find won't know whether you're allowed to or not, so they'll err on the side of caution and say no. What you do is you just go do a freaking show. You do a show and people love you and instantly your bargaining position is immensely greater. Mm-hmm. So I back the fact that I'm just a good performer. So once I'm on there, I'll get my people, and we'll we'll all have a good time. And then the word gets back to the producer that, yeah, he's a bit dirty, but people like him. I think, I hope. (laughs) I'm still doing it, so, I mean, can't be all bad. You know, we talked about this a little bit when we were in Singapore, about pitches and about dropping into a new pitch when you're traveling and trying to get permission from the big person on pitch before you perform. Not from the authorities, but from the other performers. Yeah, from the other performers. And I remember you had a really interesting perspective because it seemed contradictory, but it wasn't. I've had a couple of good on headbutts with some of the local people that are entrenched in pitches. Mm -hmm. I've never shied away from it. I just firmly believe that it's everybody's right. I don't believe in seniority. I believe with seniority comes respect, but I don't believe that with seniority comes um, ownership or a right. If somebody comes up to the pitch and they're obviously a newbie, I just don't have the right to say they can't do it. Mm-hmm. I don't have the right to say that they can't go in the draw, and I don't have the right to forbid them from going on the pitch. That's something I just don't have the right to do. I do have the right to tell them that they should go somewhere else and learn what the hell they're doing. I try and tell them, you know, I go there and learn and try and help them. But if they wanted to play, then I would let them. I have no rights to stop them. It just seemed like what you were saying was, and if this person does really want it, they'll come back again and again and again. And then you know that they want it. Oh, they will, of course, you know. Once you've worked out how to street perform, or if that's what you really, really want to do, then nothing's going to stop you. Yeah, absolutely. 
I really, really wanted to street perform, and yeah, nothing was going to stop me. And most people I've spoken to throughout my career are similarly driven. Once you work out that you can make money on your own terms, it's a powerful drug. I think of myself as a a people farmer. How's that? Explain that more. All these people in, in our world, they have their jobs and, and stuff, and they're looking for entertainment in their spare time. And uh, we farm them. We herd them into a circle, and, uh, and, we, and we milk them. <laughs> then we send them back out to pasture to go make some more money. <laughs> we can herd them again at a later date. It, it really very much is people farming. I never thought of it that way, but I like it. <laughs> um, have you been busking in Iceland at all? Does Is there a summer season? Do you ever go out and do it? It's heavily affected by the weather. We have truly atrocious weather up here. It's just not nice that often. It's insanely expensive. And when I landed here, I came on a one-way ticket. It's like a real, you know, throw a dart at a map kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I landed in the rainiest summer in Iceland's history. It was tough, man. It was really tough. I was doing the two-minute noodle life. <laughs> and, um, what is that? You don't even enough money to pay your rent and eat two-minute noodles. Oh. <laughs> and look at the rain. Look at the rain. Look at the rain. Look at the rain. Please fucking stop raining already. And, uh, yeah, and then as soon as the rain would break, you'd go outside and, and you realize the street was dead. Fuck. <laughs> you can't work either. Mm-hmm. There's just a very, very small window that you can work in terms of like a time window. There's certain hours of the day that are workable. And then on top of that, you've got to track the layer on of what's the weather doing. Yeah. yeah. But once you've got a house to stay in and everything, then it's okay. Because it takes a lot of pressure off. Right? If, you're, mm-hmm. if you're paying your accommodation like I was and, and trying to do it, ugh, awful, awful, awful. What kind of adjustment was that like? I mean, sure, you have, you know, the seasonal stuff you're working through, but also just there's got to be a change in the people. And, you know, you speak Icelandic now, but uh, that must have been really difficult. Uh, uh, Iceland's a funny old place. It's only 300,000 people, so they all speak Icelandic, but they all also all speak very good English. Mm. It's the smallest language in the world. And so you can't really go anywhere outside of Iceland and expect anyone to understand you with Icelandic, and you can't understand any movies or anything so everyone learns english from a very young age and how did they react to the wally show they love it (laughs) Uh, they love it for a totally different reason they love it very much because the children whilst they can speak english do not understand the innuendo Uh uh-huh so the parents uh they don't hold back at all and they're not worried about what the children are thinking at all they know that the kids can't understand so they're they're free with their their reactions and their laughter, and they, they just they just love it. They're Vikings as well, which helps. Oh, sure. And so it's been very funny for me because I've been there for quite a while now. So I had a great moment last year when a, a father came up to me with his uh, two 10-year-old kids. And he goes, oh, Wally, she's wondering, can I introduce my children to you? They've grown up watching your show. <laughs> so I just thought to myself, four fucking kids. <laughs> <laughs> but then I also thought to myself, damn, you know, they're, they're just going to like it more and more and more as they get older and older and older. They can keep watching it and they'll just keep understanding more and more and more. <laughs> but it's funny that, isn't it? You know, it's funny that it gets accepted here 
because if I, when I perform on the street, I perform in English. And because it's, English is a second language thing, the children really just generally don't get it. And I can't say the same thing when I work in Canada and in the States and in Australia and in New Zealand because of all the media that's on the television and all the television programs are getting more and more and more risque these days. There's one at the moment on television called Two Broke Girls. Yeah. It's almost like watching The Wally Show. <laughs> that's become mainstream. Yeah. So there's the children in the English-speaking countries, quite frankly, are just starting to do this humour anyhow. And they're getting exposed to it on television. So it's, that's going to become a lot less shocking. I think it's quite interesting to think of you as the the example. I mean, in a way, isn't that how all culture kind of develops, is one specific thing breaks off, and then that becomes what everybody knows, and therefore then that's the standard. Like, I wonder, with all these kids growing up watching your show, if <laughs> this is going to spawn a whole new kind of... Really, that's something I'd like to think about. <laughs> <laughs> a breakaway genre of performance. I'm proud of what I do, but I don't really want to think about the long-term repercussions on the artistic psyche. <laughs> the butterfly effect. It's <laughs> kind of crazy to think about. It's true. I mean, you know what? And this was another thing I was thinking about when we were in Singapore, how fascinating it was working with all the South Americans. That's a funny thing that's come from the internet age, you know? And, yeah. And I touched on it before, like when I started, how we used to have to send videos. And the hardest thing about that was finding who to send the video to. Mm-hmm. That was very difficult to get addresses and stuff. And you take it back even further and you hear the stories of the earlier street performers and they just had no one to send it to. They just had to go. And nowadays with the internet, you can just, if I want to do something in Krakow in Poland, and you just Google festival Krakow, Poland, and you get a couple of good leads. South America is this giant street performing culture down there. It's really, really, really big. But you're only just starting to really see them on the circuit now. Yeah. It's the internet, which is letting them go into this other street performing world. It's letting them cross a huge, great big bridge and... It's great because we so need it. It's globalization, isn't it? I mean, it's what? more than that. It's, you watch, you go to these festivals now in Canada and, all, all in, and anywhere, all these big street performing festivals, and you just see the same, they really are just the same things. Mm-hmm. It's different, they're following the same formula. And it's wonderful to see these South American acts because they're not the formula, and they're also different, also entertaining, and the variety it's giving. It's wonderful because people are going to take from it and it'll make us richer. Yeah. But I've been feeling very much for a while that it's it's stagnating. Mm-hmm. Especially the festival culture. The festival culture in particular is definitely stagnating street performance. It's making it way too politically correct. There's no edge to it anymore. People are making stuff now to be selected by producers and there's so many uh, the acts you don't actually perform on the street anymore. They do. they can only put they only perform for these big crowds and they don't really know how to build a crowd from scratch. Mm-hmm. It's not really the craft, not the way I learned the craft. It's, it's still cool, but it's just different. Yeah, I'm really excited to see this as an influx because we mm, need it. It just has a different flavor to it, and it excites me that there are different ways of approaching an audience that, that again, as we were talking about, if Wally is this kind of rogue breakaway that creates 
an entirely different culture. I really feel like I'm watching a different culture of street that has learned by its own rules. And it's, I can't wait to see what it does 10, 20 years down the road because they're going to have to start blending. Yeah, I think it'll blend much faster than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, those acts will very, very quickly pick up from the Western model. They'll pick up the the way the Western acts. The Western acts have nailed getting money out of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They now down to a fine art at the expense of their art. Right. And uh, so the, the first thing the South Americans are going to do is they're going to pick up the way to get money. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> The very first thing, and and then the the Western acts will get some other people to steal from. Well, I, I hope that it makes people step up their art. Steal was a harsh word. <laughs> get inspired by them. I don't think anyone's gonna like take them verbatim, but they'll see new things. Yeah. And then they'll apply them to what they're doing. Oh yeah. You go to any festival and you'll see there'll be a couple of unicycle shows and a scope show and a la-la-la-la-la show, you know. And so there's very rarely anything just new and original. It's really, really, really fresh. Mm-hmm. I think the South Americans have got freshness in spades. There's a lot of freshness there. And it'll just be a breath of fresh air. So who do you see out there who's doing good stuff? Like, who makes you excited? I've really enjoyed watching shows that aren't, formulaic and there's nothing can bore me to tears quicker than a formula show Mm -hmm. that's so boring Uh, so yeah any act that's out there making street art without following the formula is awesomely exciting to me the trouble with those acts is they so quickly get picked up and taken off the street Mm -hmm. and basically put where they belong which is in a in well-paid cabaret work Mm -hmm. They don't put out much of a fight most of the time. <laughs> no, don't take me away from it all. <laughs> I love the asphalt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Some brilliant acts are Rob Torres mm-hmm. and Fraser, Strawberry the Clown. Mm-hmm. Neither of which do a formulaic show at all, and they can both truly, truly, truly rock the street. But they're basically they're too good for the street. You don't see them on the street. You see them there every now and again, but they're always part of a part of a large festival. What do you think your strengths are as a performer? As a performer, oh, I'm brave. I'm very brave and I'm tenacious. If it gets awkward, I'll just keep going with it. I believe that if it's awkward, you just keep going. Eventually, you're going to get somewhere. Um, that's. Um, I have a good sense of humor. That's helpful. I mean, I understand. I just know what funny is. It's very helpful. Um, and charisma. Charisma is very, very helpful. Like, I think that's like um, uh, the most necessary skill for any performer is charisma. People need to like you. Do you think charisma is born or do you think you can learn it? Oh, you definitely learn it. It's not born. No way. I know, well, charisma can be born in the sense that... Uh, People can be brought up in environments where they're given a lot of confidence and that confidence will breed charisma. But are they genetically born with charisma? No, I don't think so. When do you think you have been the most satisfied with just your career path and everything that's happened? 
Uh, whenever I travel back to Western Australia and see the people I grew up with, it's ironic now that I am those people now. I, well, I do. I have a wife now, and I have children, and, and I'm much more selective about the work I do. But uh, it took me 20 years longer to get there than it did then. That's a satisfying thing to know that I, I've only got one life to live. I'm not a Buddhist. And to have known that I've really lived it. Been to a lot of places and I've had a lot of experiences, and that's very satisfying for me. And to also know that I've been to a lot of places off the beaten path. And I've had the courage to go to places that are not on the street performing trail and map out new places. I find that very satisfying as well. Mm-hmm. Another thing, it just the satisfaction of making a difference. Like, at the end of the day, we, we work in a job that really just, it just makes people happy. We provide happiness and joy and, and laughter and we can provoke thoughts, we can make jokes about big issues in the world. Like, you can make a joke that draws people's attention to climate change or things like that. This is a satisfying thing. It's got to be more satisfying than, you know, stamping out car parts and something like that. Which makes us very fortunate that we have been brave enough to do that. And also, you can't do it unless you're comfortable in being poor as well. Mm-hmm. Like so many people that I speak to are like, how do you do that? Do you make enough? And the only answer to that really is, how much is enough? I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't enough because like, logically, it wouldn't be enough. So I wouldn't be doing it. It's having a, a different view on uh, on a safety net yeah on what's enough for life to be happy that's really what it comes down to is your life happier if you meet your standard of what enough is or i just know i'd be miserable if i didn't perform and i'd be miserable if i didn't work for myself Mm -hmm. I, i could take orders from anybody so if you weren't a performer or a busker or a circus school teacher what do you think you would be um Probably a soulless marketer. I mean, I'd use my skill set. I'd go into marketing. Marketing and sales. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what street performing is. We're selling a memory. You perform, and people watch you, and and they have a great time, and then you've already given it away for free by the time you ask for the money, and then people give you money for what they remember that you did, and then they walk away. And every step they take, you know, the memory fades. You're just selling a memory. So if you can sell a memory and you can give away something for free first and then make someone pay for it afterwards, you're pretty well qualified to work in sales or marketing, I feel. <laughs> who are your heroes? Like, uh, who do you look up to? I mean, apart from my father. Uh, yeah, I guess. In the street performing community, I... Uh, I'm a big fan of um, Hilby. Hilby, the, the skinny German juggler boy. He had a big impact on where I went in life. Just, it just, it just so, so positive. It was just so positive to me. It really just made me realize that I actually was good. It was one of the first big, big, big name acts that was just genuinely, you know, really just positive to me, just treated me as an equal. So, yeah, that's a bit of hero status there from me. Hmm. And, um, yeah, I also really, really just love the guys that just keep on trucking, man. 
keep on trucking. Like they don't know what else to do with their lives. That is such, and they become such masters of the craft. Like Sean, bike boy, he's unbelievable. I love him as a person, and and his show is amazing. So there's an awful lot of respect there. I, I, I really respect that. A bit of a hero of mine. I don't want to say I want to be Sean. I look up to him. How long do you think it takes to make a significant contribution to this world? As a human or as a street performer? Uh, okay, both. Oh, God, I think you make a contribution to it the moment you start. Um, you don't make a contribution to the community, really, until you travel or until you host people that are traveling. Hmm, okay. Because that's, you know, that's how stuff spreads and moves. So by nature, you really need to travel. You need to work new pitches. You need to come in contact with new people and spread ideas. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know if you need to. I don't think you need to do that. But how do you make a contribution to the community? You need to. Mm-hmm. In South Africa, I didn't see another street performer for you know, three or four years. And so I didn't really take anything from other shows or other performers. You know, I really just made up my own stuff. And then I suppose when I left South Africa and went back onto the circuit again, then I was definitely making a contribution to the community at that stage. I don't know if it was a good contribution or a bad contribution, but it's definitely a contribution. I definitely was bringing something new. Have you started training people to busk up in Iceland? Uh, um, <laughs> double-edged sword, really, isn't it? You know? um, <laughs> well, because it's so small that anybody you train is... It's a tough one. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I mean, my, my opportunities there to street perform are so limited. Uh-huh. That, uh, the competition would be a bit sucky. And the performing here is in such a grey area. It's not regulated at all. I mean, I trust myself to not piss people off and do the right thing to keep it viable for myself into the future. So I'd be worried about somebody not respecting, you know, not knowing how, like, if you blocked up shop doorways and stuff, you would you know, stop being a popular street performer and start being a problem. I'd be worried about that. But at the same time, you know, if someone wanted to do it, I'm sure it's not going to stop them. But I'd encourage them. Nah. No, no. <laughs> I, I got all the guys in my circus. And I, I teach freely. I teach them everything I know in terms of performing and the circus. But I push them towards other venues. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the circus and about the troupe of people you've got together and how it started. My company is wicked. <laughs> when I married my wife, uh, I was the only circus guy in the entire country. <laughs> it's pretty boring when my favorite skills are passing in terms of juggling and doing acrobalance. And there's no one here, so you couldn't really do anything. So I put up a whole bunch of signs all around the main city of Reykjavik saying free handstand classes and named a time and a day. And people just came and left and came and left. And that kept going for about six months. And I just kept on just being there, always there, and just doing handstands. Just teaching people to do handstands. And eventually I got a little tribe, a little tribe of handstand junkies. And um, once I had that little group together, and I realized that I, I had a group and I the idea just slowly evolved. I decided I wanted to make a circus. And so I got a, I asked around, got a bigger space, and uh, I came back from tour, and you come back from tour, you've got a fair bit of money, so I invested a bunch in uh, circus equipment and uh, some costumes. 
And I started training people a little bit more specifically to do things. And I started just went out looking for work, and looking for jobs, for what was quickly becoming a company. And it, it just grew and grew and grew. And it's like five years on now, and I, I employ eight people full-time. And I've got five people in my company that are like me. They've just never had a job. They've just only ever been performers. And I'm pretty sure I'm the largest independent arts company in the country. That's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's really, really fucking amazing. When I stop and think about what I've accomplished there, it's pretty mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. But I'm not even close to finished with it. I mean, I've got every single day I wake up with a new goal. And, oh, man, well, I should get my company to do that. And then and start steer them in new directions. And mm-hmm. It's just so satisfying watching people grow. I send people abroad to go to different circus festivals and stuff to learn things that I can't teach them. And more importantly than that, stop them becoming my clones. Uh-huh. You know, if they're only learning from me for five years, they're going to create a whole bunch of me's. And that's not so good. So, yeah, trying to get them into out into the community. And overall, it's been a social experiment that's been very successful. It's come at the right time in my life as well because it's become very economically viable for me now to just be a circus boss. And it makes street performing not something I need to do anymore financially. Mm-hmm. But it is still something I need to do. But it's lovely to, uh, you definitely changed those people's lives. If they would have had a different path, less they came and learned handstands and circus skills. They might very well have gone on to be performers, but they most probably wouldn't have gone on to be circus performers. One of the most satisfying things was uh, one girl, she came to me when she was 16, and she's, she's turning 21 this year. Yeah, and she just got accepted into the, the big circus school in Rotterdam. Mm-hmm. She's just started a four-year circus degree. It's a real life changer, hey? That's she, wonderful. She into me and had a real just <laughs> turn left moment. <laughs> <laughs> so if you had to put it into a sentence or two, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, don't, 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 I don't know, Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> just would like to be remembered as a nice, honest person. And also someone who made a difference. It'll be fun to be able to look back on your life and see lives that you've affected in a positive way. That would be nice. As opposed to the life of a cunt who looks back on his life and goes, who cares? Well, I'd like, especially in Iceland, I would really like people to remember me as the guy that bought Circus Iceland and really made a a difference to this country in terms of that. That would be funky. In terms of the, the street entertainment world, just one of many, you know, one of many of us that are just tripping around the place doing stuff. I'm probably most proud of opening up a couple of pictures around the world. And there are a couple of pictures that used to be closed shops run by bullies that I've opened up and made fair places now. I'm quite proud of that. I suppose at the end of the day, I would really, really like to see street performing continue to grow across the world. It scares me a lot when I look at the way the world is getting corporatized and how street performing is becoming a regulated thing, having to be selected to play at a festival by a producer who probably has not been a street performer before, and pictures that are were on public land that are becoming private land and owned by corporations, and they have auditioning processes and 
that's something that scares me about the future for street performing. I see it becoming more and more homogenized. I would really, really like it if that somehow turned around. Mm. But I just can't see it happening in the Western world. Truly, it's a Western world problem. In the developing world, that's not a problem. They have it all. Mm-hmm. It's still just like it was 20 years ago in the Western world. You know? That's something that scares me about my craft. I've spent a lifetime learning my craft. I miss real street performers a little bit. The guys that can put their suitcase down and just build a crowd and build an experience and walk away with a hat full of money, leaving only in and just go behind them and people walking away with just a memory that's fading and a slightly lighter wallet. It's a beautiful thing. It really is a beautiful thing. There should be more of it. Walking away in the sunset. Yeah. Yeah. Yippee-yay-yay, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Yippee-yay-yay, motherfucker. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. I think that's a beautiful way to, to finish out our thoughts. Alright, ciao Bella. Alright, ciao. Bye. Stories in the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. Like what you're listening to as much as a great street show you've seen? Well then swing by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throw some love into the virtual hat by clicking on the donate button or consider picking up one of the few remaining Busker Hall of Fame t-shirts. Your contributions allow us to continue to distribute this podcast and other great content that can be found at buskerhalloffame.com. Music for today's podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to the songs are available in the notes section of this episode, and both songs are available for download in iTunes. Speaking of iTunes, while you're there, you can subscribe to this podcast by searching for Stories from the Pitch. And please do leave some feedback, as these reviews help with our rankings and visibility in iTunes. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve, or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor for an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't got enough Busker Hoff content yet? Well, then consider checking out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Busker Hall of Fame. You can follow us on Twitter at Busker Stories or sign up for our newsletter at the Busker Hall of Fame website. In the time since this recording was first made, Lee Nelson conducted a successful crowdsourcing campaign and raised enough funds to buy a circus tent for his company in Iceland, which is awesome. And just in case that wasn't enough to keep him busy, there's always this idea he threw out to Lindsay as well. I've often thought that you could take a good street performer, kidnap him, strip him naked, blindfold him, put him in an airplane, push him out of the airplane anywhere in the world that has a reasonable climate, and pull his parachute, optional for some form. <laughs> and that, that performer lands there in the middle of nowhere. I reckon that performer has this genuine thing called charm. And the first person that he meets, he can use his charm to get somewhere with more people. And then he can use his basic skills to get a couple of bucks which he could get a couple of props and he could do a slightly bigger show or move to a slightly bigger place but within a couple of weeks I reckon he'd get enough money to fly home okay this is new reality TV show it would not a bad idea (laughs) (laughs) who's the first person we're dropping out of a plane that's what I want to (laughs) know On behalf of myself, co-producer Lindsay Lindbergh, Magic Brian, who threw a ton of time into the preliminary edits for this episode, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. Oh my god, I, I shat my pants.